You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Well, thank you, Brother Chairman, and good evening, brethren and sisters and young people. In our previous study, three weeks ago, we considered the judgment seat of Christ, and tonight we're going to finish off matters concerning the judgment seat, but focus at the end of this study on the reward that comes to those who are faithful. We're going to consider what it's like to be an immortal. And so, brothers and sisters, when you think about that, Isaiah 64 comes to mind, I have not seen nor ear heard what Yahweh has prepared for those who love him. We want to just explore that a little bit here tonight. But, using the principle of recency and frequency, I'm going to take you back to Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 20, because you will recognise that that is where the title for our study tonight is drawn from. And we've given a bit of consideration to this passage. It's one of the most beautiful in this subject that you'll find anywhere in the scripture. When you look at verse 19, of course, as we considered in the study on resurrection... You have the wonderful things that are awaiting those who sleep in the dust of the earth. And then you come to verse 20. And verse 20 speaks about Christ in the bridal chamber with his bride. It says, Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers, and shut thy doors about thee. It's a very private thing. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment. And we pointed out that that word moment there in the Hebrew regar means the wink of an eye, and the Apostle makes reference to that in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52. In a moment, in a a moment we shall be changed, he says. So you've got that idea coming through this passage. Until the indignation be overpassed, and we pointed out that that indignation, of course, is a reference not to Armageddon, but to the period between the resurrection of the dead and Armageddon. It's the time of trouble such as never was. Armageddon comes in the next verse. Verse 21, when Yahweh goes forth through Christ and the saints to destroy the power of the nations. When you look at this chart that we've been using in our study, we pointed out that you can demonstrate from Exodus chapter 40 that the actual judgment process only takes about 12 months. Then there's Deuteronomy 24 verse 5 where there's a 12-month period where Christ spends the entire period, no planning, no preparation for war, That entire period he spends making contact with every single member of his bride. He will be the only one who ever fulfills Deuteronomy 24 verse 5. And that's going to be a wonderful time. And then comes that four and a half year period of preparation where the angels hand over their work to the saints. And then three and a half years before Armageddon, quite a number of things happen, particularly the work of Elijah in warning the Jews that their Messiah will soon make his appearance in the earth. So it's very important to just to get that picture in your mind of that, of that 10 year period. And you'll notice that right in the middle there at the base of that slide is a reference to Psalm 149. And we'll consider that at the end of our study tonight. That's the period beyond the rejoicing. That's the period of preparation for warfare. Did you read those words? A two edged sword in their hand. That is, of course, a reference to the use of the power of the Spirit to bring judgment upon the nations. That's not going to happen in that 12-month period of rejoicing, the marriage of the Lamb. 
So we want to focus then what it's like to be an immortal being and, of course, the preparation for the work that is before us. That's an introduction to what we're going to do tonight. But we do have to spend a little bit of time finishing off aspects of the judgment seat of Christ. And we made reference to this uh, passage in Romans chapter 14, you'll recall, that a verbal account will be given to the angels. Now, I'm not going to go through the details of that again, but it's very important because there are those who think that the interview process is almost communal. Well, it's not. It's individual. And every single responsible person is going to have to give an account. In fact, the word logos is used, an exposition of himself to God. And the reason that says God and not Christ is because Christ will not do the interviewing. It will be the angels who will do the interviewing at that time. And so this is a very important reference in relation to the judgment seat of Christ. So let's just then have a look at the process of judgment. Christ simply separates sheep from goats, as we saw in Matthew 25 in our consideration of that chapter. He either waves to the right with a smile, or he waves people to the left with a frown. That is all he will do. Some will object to that. Some will object to the result when they are waved off to the left. And they will claim better treatment. All he will do, brothers and sisters and young people, is give a one-line answer. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I don't even know who you are. You might have been on the ecclesial roll, but I don't even know you. Because they have not done the right thing. And when all have appeared, Christ glorifies the righteous simultaneously. That is, they're all made immortal at the same time. We know that from Matthew 25 verse 34. We also know it from that passage that we've just made reference to. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 51 to 53. That'll be the moment. That'll be the greatest moment in your living existence when you are changed from what we are now to an immortal being in the presence of all of those who will share that with you. Christ then dismisses the rejected and the angels herd them away as we read in in Luke chapter 13 and verse 28. And you probably recognise already that the angels play a very important role in this judgement process. But let's just focus on the purpose of judgement. We pointed out that the righteousness of God will be upheld in this process. And that process is designed to determine what has been in the engine room of our individual lives. What is it that's being motivating us, brothers and sisters? We want to explore that. I want you to come with me to the first of Corinthians chapter 4. In the epistle to the Corinthians, the apostle has to deal with some of the charges that were laid at his feet. I mean, he had enemies. If you've done your reading in 2nd of Corinthians today, you will know from chapter 11 that he had strong opposition in the Corinthian ecclesia. In fact, he calls one of his enemies in that ecclesia Satan. Now, that's pretty strong language, isn't it? To call someone who is a fellow Christadelphian. He calls him Satan. Because, you see, they were undermining the work of, of the Apostle Paul. And what they were doing was sowing doubt about his integrity. Well, you get that feeling. If you read the early verses of First of Corinthians chapter 4, take, for example, verse 1. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. 
Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. And then he, then he addresses the charges that were made against him. You know, there were those who were saying, Paul, you do this because you like the popularity. Well, he didn't have much of that. Uh, you like the benefits. Well, there weren't too much of that. As he points out, all of the hardships he went through in that chapter that we've just read today in 2 Corinthians. Uh, you know, and they say, well, you, you like the meals that are provided for you. You like the support that you get. You know, the, the checks that are given to you on your journeys. Well, he didn't accept any from the Corinthians. He never took anything from them. You see, so they were charging him falsely. Verse 3, but with me, he says, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment, yea, I judge not mine own self. He says, therefore, judge nothing, uh, verse 4 rather, for I know nothing by myself, it should actually read against myself, as the RSV has it, I know nothing against myself because Paul did what he counselled us to do in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread, etc., Paul had done that and he realised that he was not guilty of the charges that were laid against him. He says, hereby I am not justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. And then men will get the only praise that's worth getting, brothers and sisters, the praise of God. By the time you get to my age in life, you realise that the praise of men is worth zero. Because it doesn't last very long anyway. The only praise worth having is the praise of God. And that's going to happen at the judgment seat. And we're going to be there, each of us, to experience that. Now this is a very, very important verse in relation to the judgment seat because it tells us why we are there. It's about determining motivation. So when you read those words make manifest, you can see in the green on the screen. That's the Greek word phaneru. It means to make apparent, to show openly. And so everything will be revealed. What's been in the engine room of our life? What's driving you? What is it that's motivating you? He says he will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. And that word counsels, the Greek word boule means the will the determination or propensity or the purpose, design or plan. In other words, what is it that's motivating you? What is it that makes you make the choices that you make? That's what will be examined at the judgment seat of Christ. And that's why it's so important for us to examine ourselves as to what is driving us, brothers and sisters. Because there's many things that, that drive human beings, as you know. Weymouth translates that, and he will disclose the motives, which is a very good translation. So that's what the Apostle says in relation to the purpose of the judgment seat. And the outcome he addresses in the 2nd of Corinthians, chapter 5. So come along to the 2nd of Corinthians, chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. Now we're going to meet the same word, fanaru, here. And we're going to ask the question, why wouldn't the translators be consistent in their translation? Well, they should have been. Now we read in verse 10 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now that word appear 
is our word fanaru. And it means to make apparent or to show forth. So this is not talking about the simple fact that all responsible people will be there. In that sense, yes, they will literally appear at the judgment seat. But that's not what the Apostle is saying. When you come down to verse 11, you read this. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we, he says, are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciousness. Those two made manifests in verse 11 are the same Greek word, phanaru. So that's how they should have translated it in verse 10. So let's read verse 10 again with the proper translation. Because it's all about what will happen at the judgment seat, not the fact you're going to appear there. For we must all be made manifest. In other words, you're going to be revealed for what you are. That's the simple fact of it. It's all about revealing men for what they are. You will be made manifest at the judgment seat of Christ. That everyone may receive the things, and you'll notice you've got some red lines through the italicised words here. The word done, the word his, the word it be, alright? You can cross them out, of course they're not in the original text. So you can read it more clearly, when it's, this is what it should say. That everyone may receive the things in body, that's where the outcome is, in the body, according to that he hath done, whether good or or bad. And that little word in there is quite important because it's the Greek word dia. And dia means through. If we have things like diameters and diaphragms, it means through. So it's through the body that we are made manifest. So the judgment process reveals motivation and the outcome will be what happens to our body. If we go to the right hand, we're changed into an immortal being. If we go to the left hand, we are shooed away, chased away from the presence of Christ to suffer whatever outcome, few stripes or many stripes, that is the creed. So that, brothers and sisters and young people, is a very important passage again. Because we've seen the purpose of the judgment, now we see the outcome of the judgment process. And as I said, the angels play a very important and prominent part in this process of judgment. Now I'm not going to go through these testimonies individually. You can see them on the screen there. You can have a look at those in your own time. Firstly, they will accompany Christ when he returns as judge of the household. Matthew 16.27, Matthew 25.31, Mark 8.38 all speak about that fact. He will not come alone. He will send the angels to raise the dead and to collect those who are living to the place of judgment, which we saw was Mount Sinai, and they will play an important part in that process. The results of judgment are to be declared in their presence. We learn from Luke 12, 8 and 9 and Revelation 3, verse 5. And they will remove and punish the rejected. We know that from Matthew chapter 13, verses 49 and 50. It will be an unpleasant task for them because they will have spent all the time with those individuals that they were responsible for them, trying to do their best to get these people into the kingdom. But they will not have responded, and it will be a very, very miserable task for the angels to have to push them away from the presence of Christ. 
Now we're all familiar, I think, with this passage, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14, and I think it's a very important passage in relation to this this matter of the angels' involvement in the judgment process because they are very active, brothers and sisters, on our behalf today. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14 makes that point very plainly and clearly. Are they not, and he's talking about the angels, if you just look back at verse 7, it says, of the angels, he says, so the subject matter here is a comparison between Christ and the angels. So it's a reference to them in verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits, it says. Now, that word ministering is a Greek word, liturgikos. They get the English word liturgy from that. Liturgikos means public service, especially in the temple. And so the angels are, in effect, really genuine public servants. I used to be a public servant once, and I don't know that I did very much for the public. And that's just the way it is. But these are genuine public servants who are here, brothers and sisters, and I say that word advisedly, they are here because they're with us tonight, we can't see them, but they've come along with us and they'll they'll go back to the Father tonight when you go to bed. They're here because we read about that here. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth, that's the Greek word apostello from which we get the word apostle, and we know what apostles are, The word means to send forth, to equip, to dispatch on a mission and Christ dispatches them on those missions to minister, it says, for them who shall be heirs of salvation. We would all put ourselves in that class, wouldn't we? Heirs of salvation. Well, if that's the case, they are sent forth on missions in relation to you and me to minister. And that word minister, or two Greek words in fact rendered minister there, ace diaconia means literally with a view to service. They don't come just to watch. They do a bit more than just watching. They do a bit of that too. They come to minister, to serve. Now, most of us I think if we were honest with ourselves would say we're not always conscious of that fact. We go about our lives we're not always conscious of that fact. I I will, I'll confess to you that I would behave myself a bit better if I was always conscious about that fact. And I think it's, it's very, very important to be conscious about it. But the angel's there. You know what he else is doing? We're going to talk about this. He's recording. He's recording what motivated us during the day. Now I want to turn to this subject, because this is where they get involved, of the books of judgment. There are two books of judgment. The first one is a book of the life. It is an individual account of our daily lives. And the second one is just one book. Where is the first one, the book of life? Each of us have one if we're responsible. The book of life is one single scroll. And on that scroll, of course, is written just names. No activities, no actions, just names. And when you're you're baptised, your name goes into that book of life. And it stays there until it's either removed, and it was removed, for example, in the case of nearly two million people in the wilderness, just two years after their baptism, because of, of their total faithlessness, 
Their name was out of the book of life and Moses knew that. If he says, take mine out, keep theirs in, God says, not on your life, Moses. I don't operate on the basis of, uh, of substitution. So we know that their names were removed from the book of life. That's why Christ says, your fathers were in the wilderness and they're dead. Well, of course they were dead. But he means dead, dead. Their names are not in the book of life. They'll be at the judgment seat, but they're gone. Not a great place to be. So you've got these two books. You've got a book of the life, and you've got the book of life. And David believed that they were literal. Have a look at Psalm 56, verse 8, if you like. Because this is what it says, verse 8. Thou tellest my wanderings, he says. That word tellest, kafar in the Hebrew means to score with a mark as a tally or record. That is to inscribe. So when David uses that terminology, he knows that there is a written record. He says, Thou tellest my wanderings, put thou my tears into thy bottle, are they not in thy book? And that word book there, sifra, comes from kafar, the previous word, tellest, and it means a writing or a record. Now we have people arguing about whether God needs a record. Well, of course he doesn't need a record. He's given us one of his word and he keeps a record, we believe, of our daily motivations. How do we know that's true? Well, we know it's true from Malachi chapter 3 and verse 16. This was the practice of the monarchs of the time. You may well recall the sleepless night that the king spent and, and uh, Haman was coming in in the morning to, to seek the death of Mordecai the Jew. Remember that in the story of Esther? And they brought out the records of the kingdom because every evening before he went to bed, the monarch of the time would have his scribes come in and they would record the major events of the day. It's a little bit like what they do in Parliament. They keep a record of every word that's spoken in Parliament. So it's not an uncommon thing amongst men to do that. And God himself does it. Malachi 3 tells you that. Because it says this in Malachi 3 and verse 16. Then they that feared Yahweh spake often one to another. And Yahweh hearkened and heard it. In other words, he's hearing the conversations of people and he's finding and he knows what their motivation is in relation to those conversations. Here are people who fear him. So what are they doing? And what is he doing? Well, we're told here. It says, and a book of remembrance was written before him. Look up the words. It means in his presence, like the monarchs of old. So the angels go back to the Father. We know that from Matthew 18, verse 10. The angels always behold the face of my Father in heaven, said Christ. Well, they don't always, they're not always there, because they're with us most of the time when we are awake. But they can go back to the Father instantly with spirit travel. And when they get back there, they're not going to sit there and twiddle their thumbs. This is what they do. A book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared Yahweh and that thought upon his name. Now let's have a look at some of the words that are used here. This word remembrance, zikran in the Hebrew, means a memento from the root zakar to mark. That is to remember something by recording it. Goes on to talk about written before him. The Hebrew word is kathab. It means to grave or to write. And this is the reason why they write those things, brothers and sisters. 
It's about the motivation of these people that spoke one to another. Because it says that thought upon his name. And that word thought's very, very important. It's the Hebrew word kashab. It means to plait or to weave, to compute by mental effort. In other words, people were thinking about how they could weave into their lives the principles and the character of their God. That's what it's about. And they were talking to one another about how they could improve their performance, how they could do better than what they had done in the past. And Yahweh makes sure that that is recorded in the book. Why? Because it's about motivation. It's about intent, isn't it? And you know, you you bring up children. The one thing you want to see in your children is a desire to do the right thing. And we've all got human nature. It's an awful problem. And you see rebellion from a very early age in children. And you, you do your best to guide them and to bring them into the right way. What you want to see in your children is good intent, a desire to do the right thing, a desire to please their parents. You can work with that. You can't work with disinterest or with rebellion. And that's the principle involved here. When Yahweh looks down upon us, brothers and sisters, that's what he's looking for. He's not going to get perfection. He knows that. We are all sinful creatures. Not a man on earth except one who's now at the right hand that hadn't sinned. And we sin all too frequently. Now what about these books? Well, they're going to appear again. A thousand years after the judgment seat that you and I will be made manifest at. Because when you come to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 12, you find that the second resurrection and the second judgment follows the same pattern as the first judgment. He says, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. So those who had been mortal in the kingdom age, who died during that period, will be raised to face judgment. And it says this, And the books were opened. Notice it's plural. So there's many books. One for each individual that is raised from the dead and those that are alive and remain. And another book was opened. Singular, you'll notice, which is the book of life. So you have an individual record of the lives and you have one single book in which is written names. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books. So that's the important thing, isn't it? I wonder who might use those books. And you see, I think you and I, like the angels, will be there at that second judgment at the end of the millennium. And we will have been the ones who have been recording the motivation and the activities of those over whom we had some responsibility, just like the angels have that responsibility over you and me. Now I can see some worried looks on faces. Because I can tell you this, brothers and sisters, if everything that I have done, thought and planned was in those books, I'd be in trouble. And I think you'd be the same. So we've got to ask this question. What is not found in the books? Well, it's all about forgiveness, isn't it? It's all about forgiveness. Isaiah 45, verse 25, Yahweh says to his people Israel, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. So where people turn and do the right thing, the record will be free of the things that they would be ashamed of at the judgment seat. 
We made reference to this passage, which I think is a very important one. Proverbs 28, verses 13 and 14. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Happy is the man that feareth always, but he that hardeneth his heart shall fall into mischief. Psalm 51, verse 9. Written, of course, on the back of David's sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. He appealed to his God. Hide thy face from my sins, he says, and blot out all mine iniquities. And you have Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. You know, it's an intriguing fact, but a very comforting fact that the judgment seat not one single word about David's sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah will be mentioned to him but the historical record will remain forever in the scriptures for everyone to read isn't that an amazing thing you can have that that sullied account of David's activities his, his murderous intent his adultery All of that will not be in the the individual book of David's life. When the angel opens it before him and says, David, let's go through your life. Let's just see what was in the engine room. What motivated you through life, David? What was it? When that area of his history comes to the fore, blank pages. Nine months of blank pages. No good, no bad, nothing. How many know that? Have a look at Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel 18, I, I think <clears throat> this is one of the most important <clears throat> sections of the prophecy of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 18, verses 21 and 22. Verse 21. <clears throat> but if the wicked, that word in the Hebrew means lawless, if the lawless will turn from all his sins that he hath committed and keep all my statutes and do that which is lawful and right, in other words, he has good intent, He shall surely live. He shall not die. All his transgressions that he hath committed, they shall not be mentioned unto him. In his righteousness that he hath done, he shall live. In other words, David will be there at the judgment seat because he was forgiven by God for his sin with Bathsheba. Not one word will be mentioned. I find that extremely comforting. If that wasn't the case, brothers and sisters, we would have cause for fear, I believe, at the judgment seat. But it is the case. But it does come back to our attitude. It does come back to whether we have good intent. It does come back to motivation. It does come back to desire. What do we really desire in life? We want to be in the kingdom, then we've got to be motivated by that desire to press forward to the the prize of the mark of the high calling in Christ Jesus. You see, it's because of what we've just been talking about that the Apostle can write things like this, that we can be blameless at the judgment seat. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 8 he says, Who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Peter 3.14 the Apostle says, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, Be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, that is, in fellowship with God, without spot, that is, you've got things pretty well sorted out, and blameless. In other words, no accusations made. 
No major sins appearing. There will be faults, there will be inadequacies, we know that. But nothing that stands in the way of you being in the kingdom of God. And Jude verse 24. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, which of course we are prone to do, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Faultless? Are you faultless, brothers and sisters? I'm not faultless unless I'm forgiven. And that's what it's about. So if you're forgiven, those sins can be removed from the record. They will not be there in the day of judgment. So I know, you know some of that might, that might sort of sink a bit deep. Let's, see, let's flip this coin a bit. Let's, let's go beyond the judgment seat. Let's go to the, 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 the moment, brothers and sisters, that we're on the right hand because we have been held blameless by that process of judgment. And Christ turns to that multitude, a vast multitude on his right hand and says, Come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What a moment that will be. So let's just contemplate for a little while what it will be like to be an immortal being. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 50, there's a basic rule that governs all of this. Where the apostle says, flesh and blood like we've got now, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. There's got to be a change. And we know what that change brought to our Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke 24, verse 39, he appears in the room, now glorified, amongst his disciples. And he has a different constitution. That record tells us, as he said to them, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. So we learn something about the immortal being. Blood is gone, right? Blood's no longer the motivator of life. So all of those organs that have to do with blood, whether it be the heart, kidneys, the liver, you name it, they're all gone. What's now, of course, driving this being is God's spirit, like the angels had, like our Lord Jesus Christ has. But there's still flesh and there's still bones. That flesh, of course, doesn't bleed. Right, You can't cut it and get blood because the blood's gone. So we get a bit of a feel for the constitution of the immortal being. In Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, we read that spirit nature excludes corruption in any form. And because of that, no sin, there's no disease, there's no sickness, there's no sorrow, and physical decline is completely absent from the immortal being. What a day that will be. And we also know this from John chapter 20, verses 19 to 29. Remember the incident of Thomas who came in and saw Christ and he says, I won't believe that he's resurrected until I put my hand in his side and feel his, the holes in his hands. Christ turns up and we know what happens. But they, were, they recognised him. Thomas knew that it was Christ, so identity was retained. Yes, all of the bruises and the suffering and the, and the lines in the, in the skin, all of that was gone. But the identity of Christ was still observable. And we also know this from Leviticus chapter 21, verses 17 to 23, which is all about the requirements of priesthood. The thing that was excluded, you could not be a priest if you had physical abnormality. And so in the immortal being, Physical abnormality, whatever that might be, 
is entirely absent. So there's just a few facts about immortality. And when you come to consider male or female, there's also some interesting things that we can understand. Male and female identity will continue. We read nothing of angels in the female form. But there will be the angels of the future in female form with a difference. And we want to explore that difference. We know from Luke chapter 20 and verse 36 that we shall be as the angels, as immortal beings. No marriage, of course, involved. We know, therefore, that the reproductive organs will be now totally redundant and will disappear from the immortal being. We also know, as we considered in an earlier class, in 1 John 3, verses 1 and 2, that when our Lord Jesus Christ appears, we shall be like him, it says, for we shall see him as he is. So we're going to be made like him, brothers and sisters. We will share God's nature and character. And there will be a perfection about that that is impossible for us to attain to today. But this is what I want to talk about. This relationship of male and female. Why don't you come back to Genesis chapter 17. Now Genesis 17 verse 1 is the first time that you read in the scripture the divine title, El Shaddai. And you will be familiar, brothers and sisters, that El Shaddai can have two aspects to it. A positive and a negative. And the positive is the one that is superior in every way to the negative. Al Shaddai is all about the nourishing by God of a family. And it just so happens that Genesis 17 is where he expands his family. This is the promise where Abraham's name is changed from being an exalted father to being the father of a multitude of nations. It's about the development of the divine family. And so God introduces the title, El Shaddai, because it's got to do with nourishing a family. Now come along to Genesis chapter 49. Because here you meet that title again. In Genesis chapter 49. And it's in relation to Jacob's blessing upon his son Joseph. And you read this in verse 25. Even by the ale, and that's the title that is used there, of thy father who shall help thee and by the almighty. There it is, Shaddai. So you've got ale, Shaddai. So what, why would this title be introduced in the blessing of Jacob upon Joseph? We'll just read on, it tells you. Who shall bless thee with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lieth under, and here it comes, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. So what we have here is God as a nursing father, El Shaddai, the nourisher of a family. And he delegated that role to Moses. Come along to Numbers chapter 11. In Numbers 11 and verse 12... You've got the incident, of course, here of the, the, uh, the sin at Taborah, where they demanded the, the goodies of Egypt. And in verse 12, Moses expostulates with his God. He says, 
Have I conceived all this people? Have I begotten them, that thou shouldest say unto me, Carry them in thy bosom, as a nursing father beareth the sucking child unto the land which thou swearest unto their fathers? So Moses is saying, well, I've been delegated this role. I've now become a nursing father. I've got to sucker this, this family of God, as it were. You know, you see the reference there to Acts 13 and verse 18? It's referred to. Numbers 11 is referred to in Acts 13 and verse 18. When the Apostle Paul, of course, was in a very similar role to Moses, makes the point. You've actually got to read the margin to find out what was actually said by the Apostles. But in Acts chapter 13 and at verse 18, you read, At about the time of 40 years, that is the wilderness journey, suffered he their manners in the wilderness. Now in the margin of my Bible, the Oxford Bible, for that term suffered, it says, He fed them as a nurse beareth or feedeth her child. Okay, so here you've got God acting as a nursing father. Now we know, we know, brothers and sisters, that that is the way God operates. Have a look at Isaiah chapter 49. In Isaiah 49, of course, you've got the chapter that deals with, with the divine family being developed. With Zion being the mother of us all. Isaiah 49 and at verse 15. Can a woman forget her sucking child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? That's natural, isn't it? I mean, nowadays you see some awful cases of mothers who are... Well, they're not mothers. But the natural inclination of a mother is to do this. She cannot forget her sucking child. She does have compassion on the son of her womb. And God says about that, he says, Yea, they may forget. Yet will I not forget thee. So here is God presenting himself as a nursing father. Have a look at verses 22 and 23 of this same chapter. Thus saith Adonai Yahweh, Behold, I will lift up mine hand to the Gentiles, and set up my standard to the peoples, and they shall bring thy sons in their arms, and thy daughters shall be carried upon their shoulders, and kings shall be thy nursing fathers. Who are the kings he's talking about here? This is about the restoration of the nation of Israel through the work of Elijah. All right? He's talking about you and me. He's talking about the kings of the age to come. And he goes on to talk about queens as well. And they're queens by nursing mothers. So you see, this kind of language is used in relation to this title, El Shaddai. So what's the point we're making, brothers and sisters? Well, that comes from Genesis chapter 2. I think you're pretty familiar with Genesis chapter 2. It's where Yahweh created Eve from the side of Adam to represent the creation of the bride of Christ from the side of Christ. Okay, It, it sets forth that wonderful secret of, of, the, of the work that we've been involved in. But you see, what God did in taking out of Adam a piece of him to make the woman was to create a law of sympathy or a bond between them that is unique to the human race, but at least it's unique to them. The same principles apply to you and me, but it was unique to Adam and Eve. That law of sympathy. You know, if you, as Brother Thomas explains in Elpis Israel, if you bang your finger with a, with a hammer, it's not just your finger that's, that feels sore. Your whole body trembles 
You know, there's, there's this law of sympathy through the whole body. So when this peace is taken out of Adam to make Eve, God creates that law of sympathy. So why did he do that? Well, he did it because he wanted them to work together. Because he gave to the man, to Adam, a greater degree of what might be called the executive qualities. That is, the, the judgment, the, the decision-making qualities of God. Not that the woman can't do that. It is that the man has got a greater inclination in that direction. But he gave to the woman the compassionate, sympathetic, the, the nursing qualities. Not that a man can't do that, because Moses did. All right? But the woman has got a greater degree of it. And what God did, brothers and sisters, was to create these two people and to bring them together with this law of sympathy that bound them together that they might work together to draw out of each other and to improve in each other the characteristics that they didn't have quite as much of as the other one. That's what marriage is about. All right? That's what it's about. It's about developing character in God's people. That husband and wife can work together to, to, to improve and to draw out of each other the things that they might lack a little of in comparison to the other. When you see, brothers and sisters and young people, what God was aiming to do, he, he, he didn't do the complete work then. The complete work is done at the judgment seat when you are changed. Because when we are changed, we are going to have an equal balance between the male and female qualities. So the identity of the individuals remains the same. You'll still know sister so-and-so as sister so-and-so. She'll be a female. You'll know brother so-and-so as a, as a brother, a male. But they'll both have exactly the same qualities and characteristics, like God himself. It will be complete. Isn't that a wonderful prospect to think about that? And you can look at your own marriage, brothers and sisters, and say, well, how's that going? How's that process going in the development of the qualities that the Father wants to see in each of us in that day? Well, let's finish off our study tonight by taking that Psalm 149 into consideration that we read at the start of the class. What a wonderful psalm this is. We pointed out at the beginning where it fits in the scheme of things. This is that period of the four and a half years, we believe. Time will tell whether that's correct. We believe it will be. The four and a half years of the preparation of the saints for the work that is to be done. And it begins, of course, with this reference to a new song in verse 1. Praise ye Yahweh, or hallelujah. Sing unto Yahweh a new song. Now this is not an extremely common phrase. It only occurs nine times in the entire scripture, a new song. And it's not a new song in terms of the words. We know what the words of those songs are. For example, there's one in Revelation chapter 5. We know what the words are. But you see, it's called a new song because you can only really sing it properly if you are immortal. You cannot fully appreciate these things until you're made immortal. That's why it's called a new song. And the full meaning of it will become apparent then. We read in that verse 1 about the congregation of the saints. 
And the word congregation here is the Hebrew word kwahal, which is the Old Testament equivalent of the New Testament word ecclesia. So when you read kwahal, you can read basically ecclesia. So we have here the ecclesia of God, the perfected ecclesia of God, called saints or called out ones. Kashid actually means faithful, kind or godly, a holy one. Someone set apart, a saint. And Rotherham, I think, has a very good translation when he says, men of loving kindness. You know, because they are people manifesting the character of God. That word loving kindness, of course, kaset, uh, appears in Exodus 34 and verse 6. It's one of the major elements of the divine character. Goes and talk about Israel rejoicing in him that made him. This is the Israel of God he's referring to. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king, <clears throat> because we will have just come out, as it were, of the bridal chamber after that one year of rejoicing that we spoke about. Let them praise his name in the dance. And it's not talking about rock and roll dancing, is it? This word in the Hebrew, makol, means a round dance. It's talking really about people who can't stop moving. You know, as I pointed out on previous occasions, brothers and sisters, when you are changed at the judgment seat into an immortal being, I cannot imagine you standing there like some stunned mullet, thinking, well, that was nice. You will be bouncing around with joy. You won't be able to hold yourself. That's what it's talking about. The rejoicing that will be apparent amongst the people of God in that day. And then you come to one of the finest phrases in this psalm, in verse 4. For Yahweh taketh pleasure in his people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. What a phrase that is. Beautify means to glorify or to adorn. And the word meek here means depressed, not, not depressed mentally, but figuratively. That is, people who don't think too much of themselves. People who have been meek. People whose lives have been dominated by the word of God. People who do not challenge the word of God. People who are prepared to bow to it, brothers and sisters. This word is used of Moses. The very first occurrence of this Hebrew word is in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, where it is used of Moses, who was the meekest among all men. Just try him. You know, lead him down the wrong path. He will tell you well and truly where, where he stood. Alright? He's not meek in that. He's not a weakling. He's not a cream puff. But he's one who will stand with the word of God and you will not get around him. Alright? That's what meekness is. This is someone who bows to the demands of God in their life. They are humble, lowly and meek in that sense. Whatever God says is right. Right? That's what their spirit is. They're the kind of people who will be in the kingdom of God. And because they have that attitude, they don't think too much of themselves. Because they know what's in human nature. They know you can't trust it. But you can trust God. That's the kind of qualities that these people are adorned with. In verse 5, he says, Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud upon their beds. Beds? You won't need a bed as an immortal being. The word doesn't mean a bed. It means a couch or a recliner. A place where you can sit down with other people and talk 24 hours a day if you wanted to because you won't need to sleep like most of us, especially us older ones, have to do, sometimes even during the day. So, brothers and sisters, it's going to be a wonderful time. And it goes on to talk about the high praises of ale being in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. I'm not talking about a literal sword. 
It's talking about the power of the Spirit of God which will be given to these people. And when that word mouth is used, let the high praises of God be in their mouth, it's actually not a reference to the mouth. The word pay is the word for mouth in the Hebrew. It's talking about the neck or the throat. You know, that guttural thing, which is really a reference to the being, what's, what's deep down in the being. This is something that is, that is deep in these people. As, as Rotherham translates it, the high songs of God be in their throat. They sing with real meaning and purpose. And the two-edged sword, of course, reference to the spirit of God. And goes on to talk about executing vengeance upon the nations and punishments upon the people, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute upon them the judgment written. And it's an honour to be given that task. This honour have all his saints. Praise you, Yahweh. And we've got today some views going around in our community that the saints don't hurt anybody. They don't do anything in the judgments upon the world. That is so ridiculous, brothers and sisters. It's utterly ridiculous. Because the saints' role is not passive. In Malachi 4, verse 1, you have reference to the, to the battle of Armageddon. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, all that do wickedly shall be stubble. You see, it's talking about a heap of sheaves in a valley for judgment. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith Yahweh of armies, but it shall leave them neither root nor branch. And then verse 3 says this, And ye shall tread down the wicked. It's a reference to the saints who are in glory. You are going to tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith Yahweh of armies. And Paul says in Romans 16 verse 20, And the God of peace, he says, shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. So the saints involved in this work of judgment. And that's why Christ said before Pilate in John 18 verse 36, Jesus answered him and said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight. They are going to fight when the time comes for his kingdom to be established. You see, brothers and sisters and young people, there's a great future in front of us. But you see, if you're going to be given that role and that task, then you're only worthy of it if you're ready for it. If the motivation of your life is right. That's a great responsibility. It won't be given to those who are not ready for it. So we need to be ready for it, brothers and sisters, because all the signs indicate that the day is at hand. In our next study, God willing, next week, we'll have a look at Armageddon itself. And a changed land and a greatly changed world. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look.
If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at btf at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen. Thank you.